And welcome to the latest edition of Let Me Tell You Something's Match of the Week. A spin-off of the main show, Let Me Tell You Something, where your co-host Lorca Mullen and your other co-host... Silent Cross. ...discuss a match that we take in turns picking from the wide range and history of pro wrestling around the world. It's my turn, and I've picked a show from maybe the last of the territories and essentially maybe you could argue the uh, only territory to be created after the death of the territories simon what match are we talking about today we are talking about a wwe intercontinental title match but not taking place in wwe taking place in smoky mountain wrestling between the defending champion the heartbreak kid sean michaels and the nature boy but it's not a WrestleMania-style match, as it's not Ric Flair. It is indeed Buddy Landell. Yes, some people might not know that there are three Nature Boys in the history of wrestling. Four if you count the black Nature Boy, Scoot Andrews, but I don't know if he ever came Nature Boy endorsed, like both Flair and Landell got from Buddy Rogers. Oh, okay. So, yeah, that's the funny thing with Landell. It's good that we actually picked this one after Eddie Gilbert. I didn't even realise this at the time, but after I read, like with the previous episodes, Eddie Gilbert, Cactus Jack match, his obituary in the Wrestling Observer, they were people with a lot in common. Not least of which, they were basically born within hours of each other, they think. Oh, okay. So, Buddy Landell... When reading up Meltzer's obituary, he describes him at the start as one of the great what-ifs of pro wrestling. Mm. Uh, To me, I remember my perception of him had always been that he was like a cheap knockoff imitation version of Ric Flair. He like The first few seconds, because to lift the curtain back... Uh, you rec- he put his recommended li- uh, viewing the pre-match promo that Landell cut. So I, I naturally I did watch that first. The first few seconds, he just looked like Ric Flair, but if you ordered him off Wish.com. Yeah, he's like the Ric Rick- Flair equivalent of those knockoff Disney DVDs that you got, or VHSs as a kid. <laughs> get me Steven Spielberg, he's busy. Then get me his non-union Mexican equivalent. But it's funny how we have those perceptions, especially if you're... Brought up in the almost hermetically sealed propagandaish viewpoint of one particular wrestling promotion. As we're seeing now with some people getting insanely angry at any success that AEW has when they're on Twitter. Or vice versa. Yeah. Damn wrestling fans, they ruined wrestling. That's two Simpsons references. And there'll be many more to come. Because when I first saw WCW, I make a point about it in my book... I got a videotape of it, and it looked. I thought it was just the cheap knockoff to WWF. I thought it was the the cheap equivalent. I got it as sent as like a tape, and this is like seven, eight year old me. And by the time nineteen ninety one, ninety two comes around, I'm watching anything that's wrestling related, and WCW worldwide is on ITV. And from ninety two to ninety five, I probably watched cumulatively far more WCW television than I did WWF because I wasn't one of those kids that had Sky Sports. So things like that over time change your perception. Reading up more about Buddy Landell made me realise there was more to it than him being a knockoff imitation. 
when he became the nature boy Buddy Landell, whilst Flair had won the world title before, it was at a time when you're going around all different promotion, different territories, and so there could really be two that were going around with the same name. There were two hacksaws. Uh, there was Hacksaw Butch Reed and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Yes, yes. <laughs> I was trying to think who the other one was, and as you said it, I was like, Butch Reed. There must well, have been different mad dogs. There must have been all sorts of different... Yeah, I mean, Junkyard Dog was just... There was just one Junkyard Dog, right? Well, there were a series of dogs, I would have thought. Yeah. And so he came from... But his, his act and his look was clearly very Buddy Rogers-inspired, as was Ric Flair. So, you know, Ric Flair... It, it's almost like Bloody Landell and, and Ric Flair are almost to Buddy Rogers what Hulk Hogan and Jesse Ventura are to superstar Billy Graham. Yeah. Like there's but the difference being that they flat out have the nickname. If if Hogan had called himself Superstar Hulk Hogan and Jesse Ventura had called himself Superstar Jesse Ventura, then it would have been very similar situation with those as well. What is striking though about Buddy Landell when I first became aware of him was in nineteen ninety five. I might have seen him on WCW television in the early nineties. He was doing little jobs here and there, but he was never like a featured guy after a while. He looked like a man out of time. And so that's why I think Smoky Mountain works so perfectly for him, because it does feel like, you know, it's been frozen in amber. It seems like 1995 Shawn Michaels has been plucked up and dropped into an old NWA territory in the mid-80s. Like in uh, Jurassic Park, like Shawn's like the fly in the amethyst on top of um, Attenborough's cane. I can't remember his actual character's name, but you know who I mean. The, the old dude, the head guy. But that means he would have gone into the future. It's more like Marty McFly walking into the, the bar and asking for a Pepsi free. Ah, okay, yeah, Which yeah, would yeah. look out of place in 2015 and 1955, but in 1995 <laughs> it made sense. <laughs> what is funny with that, though, is that around this time as well, this is when we've got Shawn Michaels, the babyface, for the first time as a singles wrestler. Is he? he? Like, he's not in this match. Put the bass in your voice when you're talking to Stone Cold. He's definitely not in this match, though, is he? I think he sort of is and sort of isn't. In many ways, it's funny because this show was billed as the Super Bowl of wrestling because he had relationships with a number of different promotions, Jim Cornette, one of them being the WWF, and they would send them some guys for him to to develop and pass on to them later on. Or they would keep an eye out. And one of the key, the other big match on this card that we probably should do a match of the week on in the future if we see it was two matches before this, The Undertaker took on this very large wrestler who was in a tag team with Al Snow at the time called Unibom. Unibom just happened to be one of the many aliases of Glenn Jacobs. Oh, yeah. Around this same time, actually, would have been when he turned up in WWF as Dr. Isaac Yankum. God. So that was the first... So this card saw the first of what would be matched wrestled many times between Undertaker and Kane but you also yeah so you had a WWF Intercontinental Championship match headlining it but also there was a USWA Heavyweight Championship match between Brad Armstrong and Billy Jack Haynes there was an NWA World Heavyweight Championship match between Dan Seven and Bobby Blaze and there was an MTW Championship match between Al Snow and Marty Jannetty (laughs) Marty Jannetty got Marty Jannetty'd Mm. on Smoky Mountain Wrestling basically Martin Jannetty is another guy we need to talk about because like Eddie Gilbert and Buddy Landell, another great what-if of wrestling, a great bridge burner. That essentially Buddy Landell, whenever there was any kind of success about to come his way, would find a way to screw it up. The biggest example being that 
his version of events is probably different to what was actually going to happen. But at Starcade 85, he beat Terry Taylor to win the national championship, which was the fourth tiered championship in the NWA. You had your world, United States, television, and national. But it was still a championship belt. And right. he was being booked with against Ric Flair many times around this time. They headlined a show that had 8,000 fans turned away to to try and see it. That was how big a draw it was. With very little promotion on on, on screen. They, was it near Rick Car- would, any of the Carolinas? Or? I, it was a Carolina one, yeah. It was definitely right. Jim Crockett. But... In only a month after that, in January, he was supposed to turn up for the TV tapings. That they do cut all their promos and then they're flown out to whatever the territories they're going for the Saturday night event. Like the show starts at nine a.m., which is another sign of how amazing Ric Flair was as just a performer. <laughs> when you think of what he must have got up to, mere hours before he cuts all those promos that you hours? see all over the internet. Yeah, maybe minutes. Maybe minutes. Yes. But Buddy Landell decided that he was going to stay in bed that night, that day, and not turn up for the taping. So they said that Dusty Rhodes had beaten him at a show for the title, and he was fired. His version of events was that he was supposed to get into a feud with Ric Flair and win the world title from him. And that Flair would then go on a bit of a break and then win it back. That's not necessarily true. But what was happening around that time was Buddy Landell was being partnered up with the Andersons, and there was all sorts of storylines going on here, there, and everywhere. Yeah. And one of the storylines that was going on at the time was Ric Flair forming a loose alliance with Ole and Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard, who was also, at the time, being managed by J.J. Dillon, who had been the manager of Buddy Rogers as well. Because Flair was doing, like, face for, face for some few potential sort of heel for others. He was feuding with Nikita Koloff and, to a lesser extent, Buddy Rod, uh, Buddy Landell and others. But also trading barbs with Rick, with Dusty Rhodes. And then when they finally turned on Dusty after a steel cage match around this time, that was when Flair fully turned heel. Right. But according to Landell, essentially, if he had turned up to that taping, there would never have been a Four Horsemen. Because that, that was a storyline that they had to sort of build up in, in the interim because of what they planned to do with Buddy Landell wasn't there. And that what was supposed to be tag team matches involving Buddy Landell teaming up with the Andersons became Ric Flair with the Andersons. How much that is true or not, we don't know. But it's obvious that there were plans for Buddy Landell to be a prominent part of that promotion. Mm. And he screwed it up and was kicked out. He came back in 86 later on and he worked, but he never was given a place of prominence again. Just seems such a pointless thing to do. Like... Well, just, that's just wanting to stay in bed, like. Well, I think he wanted to stay in bed because he took a bad line of coke or something along those. Yeah, lines. this is how crazy some of his behaviour was. He was a man that once forgot his wife was at the building, and she had to be picked up and dropped off by Jake the Snake Roberts. <laughs> Jake Roberts was the sensible <laughs> one in an anecdote involving Buddy Landell. That's scary. Yeah. But I think the problem with Buddy Landell is he was, again, if he'd have arrived five or six years earlier, he would have been... I mean, he's ridiculously young. Uh, in this match, I think he's... Well, he's younger than me, I think. I'm just trying to get his age up now. He does not... I'll be honest. He looks... Yeah. But, as I was saying, the life he's led, <laughs> he was... Let me just look up what his age was at this point. 61. He... So he would have been... He would have been... 
a week short of his 34th birthday. So he was 33 Jesus. in this match. Now, he looks at least 10 years older. Shawn Michaels is only four years younger than him. <laughs> and he's gorgeous. Look mm. at him. Well, yeah, this was sort of bad boy Shawn It's funny that 95 was that time between WrestleMania 11 and 12 of him becoming the virtuous babyface, but elements of the old heel Shawn Michaels are still a bit there. He's got a beard, which he grew a few times during that run. He had a beard for a bit of his heel run, and he has a beard here. But also the mullet is still on full display. It has oh, not yeah. yet been evenly proportioned out to the sort of long hair that people still such as myself, carry to this day. And some of his mannerisms are still... Well, he's, he's, he's the cocky baby face. Instead oh, of the... I mean, Shawn Michaels was never our shucks, but he did try to clean that up and become, you know, the more... Yeah, but he's also in enemy territory, so I think he knows in this match. Uh, just, just do you. <laughs> but it's also obvious that a lot of the fans are behind I think he's like the touring territory champion, essentially. Mm. The touring champion going into a territory. That is what's happening. That the top star of, of SMW at that point was Buddy Landell. He'd been the last champion before the belt was vacated before the show. And so he was essentially the equivalent of the territory's top star going up against the, the touring champion. In this yeah. case, it's for the Intercontinental title instead of the world title. But, you know, Shawn Michaels is the guy that you want to give a guy a great redemptive... Well, I mean, Diesel, you could have done an interesting one with, you know... Diesel, you know, Kevin Nash being more like the dominating giant monster. But I think Shawn Michaels is the right guy that he can do enough flashy stuff that the fans who are there for him enjoy it and perceive him as the face. Yeah. But enough, not underhanded, but aggressive stuff. Cocky. Yeah. He, he poses on the ropes. He mocks Buddy Landell begging off. Uh, he, he throws fists at times. Yeah. But he also evades Jim Cornette's interference and knocks Jim Cornette down to the ground. He also doesn't cheat, you know, he doesn't take any any advantage. Yeah, and he causes the ref bump, but it's it's not malicious. Yeah, it's classic territory bump bump, you know, yeah. bump into each other then bump into the ref accidentally because the ref stands in a really weird position for a referee to stand for any other reason other than getting bumped. Referee yeah. as well, by the way. That's uh I can't remember his Brian Hildebrand, I think his name was. He's one of the great, and he trained with Mick Foley, and he was supposed to be a fantastic in-ring worker, but he was also like five foot four, five foot five, so could never really get wrestling work. So essentially, uh, became a great referee. Yeah. Like he was beloved by the wrestlers when he he died of cancer, and they did a huge like cross promotional show uh, fundraiser for him. Mick Foley was a big part of that. He was like Owen Hart or Brian Pillman. Like there was big memorial shows for them and here he's got again another thing of how it's such a throwback he's got those great big trouser suspenders <laughs> it's brilliant he looks like a clown like who's just like finished work and took his makeup off to rest like to ref it's it's got such a dated presentation obviously helped with the fact it's like it's probably professional cameras but it's just i don't know if it's because we're watching in 2021 it just looks a bit Dated, to say the least. Well, it's meant to be. Yeah. It's meant to be a, a throwback to the old classic days. That's why Jim Cornette started it up because he was already in 1991 getting a bit fed up with this modern day rock and rolling of wrestling. He wants to bring it back to the good old days and make this territory. And they do constant loops around the place. Like they're putting on shows every you know every day of the week. Yeah, 
uh, basically. That they, they would they would kind of be almost a bit like yeah, if you look at like their their list. So for 1995, their last year in business, they did over 160 shows. They did 161 shows in in a year. And that was with them closing in November. So, you know, if you worked in SMW, you were getting regular work. Yeah. Probably a lot more than if you were in ECW at the same time, as crazy as that sounds. But it's that thing of doing the loops and doing the spot shows in front of 300 people at a high school gymnasium, you know, and then doing the TV tapings and then the big event, which is what this was. I mean, this was the last big event, the second biggest drawing card that uh, Smoky Mountain ever had. Over 5,000 people in attendance. And obviously it helps when you bring in The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels and everyone. Mm. But Buddy Landell always took great pride in that he got to main event after this sort of comeback of sorts. Because you were saying... Because one of the things I sent you beforehand was a promo that he cuts. And it is essentially a babyface turn promo. He's still managed by Jim Cornette in this match. But he says, I don't want you interfering in this match. And it's so funny, like... Because heels are always like, no, I'm not going to cheat. I don't cheat. I'm not a cheater. And Jim Cornette starts it up. I said, I'm not going to interfere in this match. Because <laughs> they always lie. But this time, Buddy Landell says, no, you're not. He says, I'm not. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, so good. That moment. <laughs> rare moment of a heel actually acknowledging their heelness. Yeah. <laughs> it's from that double down spot, I guess, where they both collide heads and, and the ref goes down. That would have been rules. When she, he goes down with the cricket bat and Shawn Michaels does his nip up. It's a tennis racket, isn't it? What did I say? Cricket bat. Uh, well, it wouldn't be a tennis racket. It wouldn't be a cricket bat for Jim Cornette. Tennis rackets. Because yeah. he goes, like, edge first as well. Like, it makes a big thump on the mat. So if Shawn Michaels hadn't got mm. out of the way, he's getting a, a face... It's going to sting. That's gonna, well, not sting. It's just going to flout, possibly crush your skull. <laughs> One of the things Jim Cornette doesn't get credit for is that the way that he moves and his timing as a heel manager, has to be great. Whilst he obviously never was going to be a wrestler, and he knew that, he did everything that a manager was supposed to. When when Shawn Michaels hits him with a right hand, he goes flying in the air. He takes a big, big bump off of it. So he was a great bumper. I think, as I say, as as a manager, you have to be. You don't really see managers get handled now. I don't think, I don't think Paul Hamer would know how to. Now. Now. Not anymore. Paul's different because his clients always bail him out. And he, it's more like he's, it's his mouth that gets him in trouble rather than him necessarily getting in the ring. Back in the day, Paulie dangerously could do the bump. Paul Heyman now, yeah. I don't think, could. He does He does pleading better than anyone else, though. Samoa Joe choked him out. Yeah. But that's like a controlled, I'll bring you down to the mats sort of thing. He's not going to take what, what Jim Cornette does in this match. And Jim Cornette, again, probably couldn't take those sort of bumps himself. I mean, Bobby Heenan, obviously he was a wrestler as well, so he could... Clearly take the great bumps, but... Um, well, Bobby Heenan was a Swiss army knife. It's a lost star. So, yeah, let's go back to this promo, though. It's a great redemptive babyface promo. And what I love about it is that he does stumble over his words sometimes. But that yeah. kind of reflects the true honesty of what he's saying at this time. It feels more heartfelt as a result. Like, genuine. It adds an air of legitimacy to what he's saying. He comes across as a man who just wants to show not that you can get back on up on your horse but he can get back up on his horse if that makes sense it's like he's not doing it to show he's a shining example to everyone it comes across that he's 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 having to prove this to himself and everyone who watches him 
is sort of like the, the cherry on the cake. The cake is himself. Yeah. Well, Shawn Michaels did a promo as well that I couldn't find in time, but Dave Meltzer references it. A really great promo where he said, when I was starting out at the bottom, I encountered Buddy Landell. And now, you know, you see the same people on the way up as you see on the way down. <laughs> you know, now that he's in the ascendancy and Buddy Lundell's in the descendancy, this is where they're yeah. meeting this time. Although, obviously, he's far superseded Buddy Lundell at this point anyway. But it is, like I said, it's so funny how it's just four years between them, but an entire stylistic generation apart. Buddy Lundell's big finisher is a corkscrew elbow. Yeah. At that point, Shawn Michaels was using a top rope elbow as a setup to his finisher. It's weird because he hits it and the crowd obviously go wild for it being his finisher. And I'm just there like, oh, that won't do it. <laughs> well, in, in the storyline times at the time to that territory, it was believable and it was a close three count. I mean, it takes the ref a, a second to get back up and count it. So. You've almost got a visible three count on there. It's one of those yeah. things that you do in the territory to keep your face strong even when the champ wins and moves out of your territory. And you've got to rebuild from there. And similarly, he can do a whole thing of he has the pin on Sean and the referee stops the count because he spots the tennis rackets. And you talked about, obviously, uh, the ref, Brian. He, he sells that so well in terms of, like, I'm disgusted with you. But he's like, I did do out. Yeah, he didn't. That's the crazy thing. But it's like, it is a weird moment. Like, it, it is a heel's comeuppance. And he had been a heel right up until that match. But but he's not a heel in that match. Well, again, he does back off. He does cower away. But he doesn't do the eye-raking or anything along those lines in the classic Nature Boy, you know, mm. movesets. Shawn Michaels is presented throughout as like his physical superior, I think. But Lundell is holding on and he's fighting that moment and he finds it when he hits him with the DDT and, yeah. and, and everything. It's trying to like survive his speed rather than his strength. Like if Diesel, for example, as you said, had gone, it had been like Buddy trying to like survive the strength. Yeah. And overcome the size difference. But Buddy Lundell, I think, would have always found work and he did find work even throughout the late 90s. And he even wrestled on WWF television he actually got work in the WWF in 95 after this. He came on as a replacement for Dean Douglas in a match against Ahmed Johnson on an In Your House. Okay. And that was the first time I saw a picture of him. I was like, why is there a Ric Flair imitator in, <laughs> in this match? And, like, Ahmed Johnson got through him in, like, seconds. Like, like less than a minute or two. Oh, and it was... That's prime Ahmed Johnson time. But he was it? also put in on TV as having a match with Bret Hart, which I wouldn't mind trying to watch and find, on the TV thing. And, like... It was a match. It wasn't just a squash. He got televised wins against Bob Holly and Matt Hardy. So mm. he was seen as a guy on the roster. In 95-96, they were doing an interesting thing of bringing in gimmicked lower card guys who were like jobbers but not quite jobbers. Yeah. So that's where you got your Aldo Montoyas, your Freddie Joe Floyds, which was Te Tracy Smothers, your Salvatore Sinceres. And so that's probably where Landell would have ended up, but he got a really bad injury slipping on some ice. So that took him out for most of 96. Oh. But he did, he would like appear on Shotgun Saturday, like in 99 on Shotgun Saturday night, he had a match with Triple H. Yeah. Uh, when WCW came to town, he lost to Bill Gold in a precursor to that guy becoming Bill Goldberg. I didn't know his name was Bill Gold at one yeah, point. Yeah, at one point when they were working out what to do with him on before putting him on TV. 
And the funny thing is he lost in some of those matches as Bill Gold. Well, only the people live would have seen it. I, I think one of the things that you could see, though, is that he would have kept getting work for that because he's such a good bumper. He's really quick and sharp yeah. and can go at the pace that Shawn Michaels is setting. He's at ease in the ring. Yeah. Nothing looks awkward. Nothing looks clunky. It's all smooth. Everything goes mm. exactly how it's supposed to go. But the thing is, that I think there was a ceiling for him, even if he had held on to kept control of his demons. Because even if you look at him in his prime in 85, 86, he's not as good looking as Ric Flair is. He's not got as good a body as Ric Flair does. He would arrive at territories after Ric Flair arrived. Maybe a great, there could have been a great Nature Boy versus Nature Boy feud. Well, there were, like I said, when there were, they drew some big, big crowds. And after straight after he left Jim Crockett Promotions, he came to Memphis and they had their last ever full sellout of the Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis for the feud with him and Bill Dundee against Jerry Lawler. Oh, okay. So up until, really it was when he got back to Jim Crockett in 86 and he kept work, but he couldn't be trusted, so he was kept at a much lower level. And then he just sort of sunk further and further down the cards, as it were. Like, his peak was really 83 to 86, when he had a really good run in Mid-South with in Bill Watts' promotion, with Hacksaw, Butch Reed, and Ernie Ladd, I think against Junkyard Dog, and he loved Junkyard Dog, and he said he was his favourite wrestler to work with, and they did big shows here and there. So, and that was all when he was in his early 20s, you know? He was 24, 25 when he was having those matches with Ric Flair, who was 10 years, you know, over 10 years older than him. So, in that mindset, you could have thought, well, we could go for the younger option, if he can get a slightly better six-pack. (laughs) <laughs> get a little bit better look on uh, if he hit the treadmill a little bit more but he was never going to do that he never had that he's the Rob Green compared to Kepper or uh, Mendy at Chelsea he's he's the Scott Carson to Edison just there in the wings if we need him sort of but I think they just saw him as a feature guy and because he was so good at bumping and everything they always knew well this guy will make someone look good and you know he does make Shawn Michaels look good when he bumps around for him in this match refreshingly short as well I think we was thinking for this it's only 13 minutes but they pack it all in and I don't think you needed any extra time for it at all oh yeah like the fact that this is a main event compared to I mean I don't like to bag on it but like most recently that sticks in my mind Cole O'Reilly in terms of like time sinks although to be fair I was looking at the card and there was a match on the card that went almost 30 minutes that was Al Snow against Marty Jannetty but you know it just—it was nice. It was a nice difference. That was—that was what Intercontinental title matches used to be yeah. back in the day, a good less than twenty-minute semi-sprints. I tell you what's funny. Also, again, in the reading up, you know, whilst we were watching the TWA promotion with Cactus and Eddie Gilbert, yes, Buddy Landell was like the champion of that of that region at that time, <laughs> and was supposed to small, have small world was supposed to have a battle of the Nature Boys against Buddy Rogers, a seventy-year-old Buddy Rogers. In that promotion, oh. it was only meant to go for like a couple of minutes, uh, but it was again a sign that like Buddy Rogers gave him the key endorsements. And in weird ways, you can almost see an element of the Luther's Buddy Rogers match that we covered at the start of this. Shawn Michaels being the the touring champion, and in this one, it's the he's faced with a bit of a heel edge as opposed to in in that match where. In the Thez match, where he's being full on virtuous babyface, but he was always making Buddy Rogers look good enough. And similarly, Shawn Michaels made Buddy Landell look good in this. So, yeah, I wouldn't mind 
doing a bit more Buddy Landell. So, I mean, reading up on the Memphis match, that sounds like those would have been awesome to watch. Uh, but a lot, most Memphis stuff is gone for the ages now. Unfortunately, got turned taped over. But what did you, did you have any final thoughts on the match on Buddy Landell on Smoky Mountain Wrestling? From what you could see, you know, I always like to point out whenever wrestlers have m- m- mullets, I always like to say. It is so many years since Nirvana released Nevermind. Like, it's <laughs> four, these guys have these haircuts four years after Nirvana released Nevermind. <laughs> I, it's weird. As you say, it's very much a time cap. It does not feel like this took place in 1995. It, it's fun. It's good, clean, old schooly fun. Like, everyone plays their part really well. Yeah. Uh, I've talked about L- Landell's smoothness, but, because especially because he's, against like Shawn Michaels in his athletic prime um, pre-back injury mm. even Michaels this is so like well he's not yet reaching his like peak fitness that he achieved sort of around 96 when he finally won the world title he yeah. was, he, but he also isn't like late like 93 early 94 semi bloated Shawn Michaels who's having a few too many beers and not doing the necessary ab crunches afterwards to, yeah. to combat it but I think also if anyone watches the Shawn Michaels Jeff Jarrett match, which was also from this time where Shawn won the title a couple of weeks earlier, mm. this is another sign of Shawn, like the adaptable guy that grew up in these territories, grew up watching these territories, and could work that more southern friendly style, but fuse it with his more action packed, high flying that was, you know, I mean, he was pushing himself further. In this match, he does a Hurricane Rana, doesn't he? I think. He does, yes. I think he did it a couple of times with the Rockers, but it was he became more high flying as time went on. I think the Rockers it was always cross bodies and little things like that. But with when he became, like I said, when he lost a bit more of the weight and he could fly around a bit more, it became more spectacular. He does the corner bump at this point. He does his Ric Flair corner bump yeah. as well. So we see again, like Shawn Michaels is making it's that year long progression to when he becomes probably the best wrestler in North America at that point, or the most spectacular guy. The Shawn Michaels that everyone's seen. I knew, I knew when you said that, you'd walk that back straight away. The Shawn Michaels that is maybe the most artistically influential guy in North American wrestling since then. Yes. That, that's what we're starting to move towards in this match. The best sports entertainer. As I say, I, I, if you want to watch something different, if you want to watch, see like early Sean, if you want to see what Buddy's about, this is a very good indicator, I think. As much as we say it was a great story, he says, according to the obituary at this time, he was 90% sober. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think it's like along the lines of Jake the Snake's redemption around 96 as well. It would have probably taken right. a few more stick. I mean, he's got a very tragic end to his life because he had a daughter that similarly had drug addiction problems. And she died a year before he died from a staph infection after having surgery. And then the year later, he's in a car crash, goes to the hospital, either checks himself out or is checked out. And then that night dies in his sleep from internal injuries sustained from the car crash. Jeez. Even after wrestling, he was like a really successful car salesman. But again, he would like lose it all. But, you know, he was a man that was... He's a man who needed help. There's a little bit of uh, Kenny Powers in him, maybe. <laughs> if you fuse Kenny Powers with Will Ferrell's car salesman, oh god, yeah, from Eastbound and Down, maybe that's what you, maybe that's what Buddy Landell was. I've only seen a few of the first episodes of Eastbound and Down, but yes, 
That's a shout, that is. I mean, it's obvious that Will Ferrell based it on Ric Flair. But... Oh, absolutely. And it, I mean, that's one last thing. Maybe the only thing some people know Buddy Landau for is that he's the guy that Ric Flair is responding to when he does his, you're talking to the Rolex wearing, diamond ring wearing, kiss stealing, wheeling dealing, limousine flying, jet flying, son of a gun. And I'm having a hard time holding these alligators down. <laughs> which is like the the Ric Flair promo that people now repeat to this day. That was directed towards Buddy Landell. It's that and with a tear in my eye, I yeah, think. Those yeah, are the two yeah. big iconic ones. Yeah, that got referenced to the UFC event recently, didn't it? But I yeah. hope that Buddy Landell's like, it, he shouldn't be just seen as what I saw him as initially and what I think pretty much everyone will think when they see him. And what I, I said he was in the first the, few seconds. The, the Wish.com Ric Flair. Yeah. Yeah. The, the little Ric Flair. <laughs> There's always more than meets the eye sometimes. Mm, mm. But anyway, if you want to give us more ideas of other matches that might show us more than meets the eye, you can do so by getting in touch with us. Simon, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm Simon, Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of nature boys I knew about at the start of the recording. You can talk to me at Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N, which if you flip nature boy around, those are the first two letters. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, uh, letterboxed. If you want to add gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYSpod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. Simon, assuming there is no five-star matches in the interim, what can we expect for our next recording? We're going forward three years in time. We are going to an outdoor venue. We're going to Road Wild 98 watching Chris Jericho defend the WCW Cruiserweight Championship against Juventud Guerrero with special guest referee, the Iceman, Dean Malenko. We're seeing the early days of the Jericho character that we know and love to this day. But there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great week. Until the next week.